Hello and welcome to another episode of Reptile and Chill. My name is Hoss and with me is the absolutely delightfully small Danny Wells and the ever so squinty in the sunny-eyed yo Michael Phelps. And the miserable Michael Phelps. Phelps, what's the matter? What's what's happened? Come on. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Um, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I think uh, I was off last week and it was lovely, albeit we should have been in Cornwall, um, which was devastating when you think the weather we had was lying in the garden going, ah, we should be on Fishtrow Beach now, you know, taking the kids surfing and and whatnot. Um, Mm -hmm. So that, that, but, you know, it was nice, spent loads of time with the kids. It was Billy's birthday, so we made him a crazy golf course, etc. and Mm -hmm. went for nice walks and, and, and that type of stuff. But then going back to work this week, it's so hard. <clears throat> Sam works in a hospital. So she's key worker and, and her hours are going up. I'm trying to do my full-time job from home. Um, so there's lots of video conferences throughout the day, whilst also trying to help the kids with their schoolwork, keep them entertained. Dad, I'm hungry. Dad, I need this. She just tricked me up. He just Dad, kicked me. Dad, I pooped myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and you know you can start to feel it, and you think this is really hard. This is trying to juggle everything yeah. at once. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, literally, we did the live show tonight, and I literally jumped on with seconds to spare, didn't I? Yeah, I, I, I yeah. think you were late, to be honest, but we'll, 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 we'll forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it's, yeah, it's, you know what? it's mad, and you know what? It's not a nice time as well with with the job that you've got. Obviously, without going into too much detail, yeah, that's not cool during a crisis, a worldwide crisis. Um, yeah, you know, and I think I think everyone as well uh, in in general, you know, the first few weeks have been furloughed, I mean, in lockdown, it was all exciting and cool. Oh my god, this week. This week has been Marini God on Wednesday, so it's not even like it's not even the end of the week, um, and I can't even wait to the weekend because that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and we're looking at another three or four weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's like shit. At I'm, least I'm bored. At least. Like I've got to start spending some money now. I've got to buy some new books. I've got to. I I don't know. I, I, pff, there's only so much you can do. Um, it's one of those, isn't it? And plus, on... I miss my friends. I yeah, that's the hard part. That's the hard part. People don't realise it's it's hard to keep sane in times like this when you can't go out. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I miss little things like going, oh, come on, kids, should we go to the cinema tonight. Just yeah, little, you know, the things you really take for granted, don't you? Yeah, and you know what's really mad? Like before the podcast tonight, I went down to the corner shop and just bought some uh, Coke Zero. I know I've just lost a lot of respect for buying Coke Zero. Um, I do apologise. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> But like literally, it was like going on holiday. I've gone out the house, I put my shoes on, and I've walked halfway down the road to go to the shop. Like, it's a mad feeling. Like, I feel naughty. I shouldn't be doing this. The worst thing yeah. is halfway down the road. Host, host means it's it's literally one hundred and fifty yards as well. Yeah, <laughs> literally it's halfway literally. down the road. Oh, it is. It's four, it's actually about five doors away. Yeah, literally. <laughs> it's at least eight. Come on. <laughs> um, anyways, I think we should get the guest on and, and we'll introduce him too. in because being in lockdown, he's probably quite lonely and then in waiting and just hearing us talk. I think that's he doesn't deserve yeah. to wait. No. I, there is, I have got a bit of news that I want to talk about, Hoss, at some point. Yeah, but, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into yeah. that. We'll get him on because I don't want to leave him in, in the dark. So, today, well, this week's guest, uh, he's a traitor. He's a, originally from Northern Ireland. He's from a Belfast individual. 
but he decided to get on a plane or a boat or something and go and live in America. Um, he doesn't really need. I don't blame him. He doesn't need an introduction no, because the majority of you will know who he is. Um, Mister Warren Booth, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be on. Right, so no, my, my, my first question is, what the hell is the accent? What's that all about? You know, I've got no idea. It's uh, it comes and goes. Uh, I, it's funny. I, I I teach a couple of different courses and I tell the students that they're gonna. And the course being pretty bilingual, knowing the uh, Northern <laughs> Irish version and the American version and whatever else I can fit in in between. So, it, it, do you, you know, it's funny. Like it? my, my wife and I are both from Belfast, but my my kids are born here. They're two and six years old, and they um, have grown up where they know the Northern Irish terms for things and the U.S., and therefore they um, they split between the two depending on who they're speaking to. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you find that as well, that, the, that you're... Um... That, that it kind of changes depending on who you're talking to? I think it always will. I, I think you, you get, I was very conscious of it whenever I first moved over and you'd speak to people and then they, you could see that they were looking at you as if you had two heads. And then you realize, oh, right, I didn't pronounce this the way they normally hear it or that. And and over time you just modify that. And it, it, I completely switched back to, you know, full on Belfast after about a week and a half of being home. And then, you know, within a couple of hours of being back here, you kind of revert back to whatever kind of bastardized language that I've got right now. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, it's uh, Peter Nish. I, I've heard uh, mocking me several times, but you know, over the years of knowing Peter, I suppose I've mocked him enough. So. Yeah. And, and he deserves it. Um, I will point out, and I've, you've just said the B word, um, I'm not going to fine you. Um, so we oh, used to fine of all our guests if for swearing or offending us. So it well, I is... use it in a way to. Oh yeah, when you, it was it was, it was actually word. it was a describing word. He wasn't yeah. using it as a no, swear so word. No, I'm I'm still having I'm still having it as a pound. <laughs> I used um, it as an adjective. No, it's still a pound. <laughs> but we'll let you off on that one. Um, so <laughs> any further swear words will be fined, and that will be donated to charity. Shit. That's a whole English Does that go pound. For Yes, it does. That, that's a pound, Danny. Oh, What's the exchange rate? Everyone now. Right, yeah, man. Right, so <laughs> before we get on to talking about what you do and what you're about, Mr. Phelps, yeah. have you got anything interesting to go with? Um, say interesting. Um, some news popped up on my computer the other day that I found really alarming. Um, obviously, we're all struggling at the moment with uh, COVID nineteen. You know, it's put the world into lockdown, basically. And when I read this piece of news, it it was it scared me a little bit in the fact that um, it, it's been reported that in some indigenous communities in the Amazon, um, they have um, they have contracted contracted um, a coronavirus, which is really really you know it's it's bad enough for us you know it, where we live where we've got plenty of help uh, and and it's killing thousands and thousands of people you know in the some of these some of these tribes in the amazon you know that it could literally just wipe out a complete you know tribe that's been going for thousands and thousands and thousands of, of years mm-hmm. you know who pretty much like lived in, in it's not like they can socially distance themselves, is it, at all? 
No, but I mean they're isolated as a rule anyway. So you would have thought that they was probably not, not safe. Not from each other. Not from each other. Yeah. You know they but, can't. They just they can't stay away from each other, can they? That's not. They sort of live very very close knit, don't they? Yeah. So so this this article um, by Scott Wallace um, says that Brazilian officials and rights activists are warning of an impending public health calamity as reports emerge from the first deaths linked to coronavirus among highly vulnerable indigenous populations across the Amazon re uh, region. Health workers in the northern state of Ramame uh, reported on the, 8th of the, the 9th of April that uh, uh, an adolescent had died of COVID-19, heightening concerns that they may have spread the disease to scores of friends and neighbours since developing the symptoms three years, three weeks ago. It's just awful, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's um, this is a world that we don't even we're not even aware of. Um, they've got no healthcare. Um, there's no breathing apparatus to help them. Um, and they're more than likely not going to go to a hospital and probably don't have the means to get to a hospital. Um, if we, we, it's, it's treating them hosp we couldn't give them like if we give them a couple of paracetamol that could kill them well, yeah because the, again it's like what do you do um you know you, they're not, not going to accept it anyway um mm. just how they live you know and it's unfortunate i mean if the impact that i'd have onto the, the, the you know the area they know more about the land than we ever will um and it, it, it sucks man it really does um, it does, but apparently it's apparently there's sort of like um, a lot of gold miners that are around that area, and apparently um, this this one person that's um, that's caught uh, COVID nineteen had come into contact with some of the gold miners, and they think that that's how it's been, you know, uh, how it's been uh, passed through to to the indigenous tribes, which yeah. So sorry, it's a bit of a sad one uh, this week, but uh, I just thought. Uh, uh, I just wanted to bring that up. Um, I haven't got any stats with me, but there was a good bit of news that I've seen that some countries that suffer, like China and other countries, of major pollution uh, issues, that the uh, pollution has cleared up so much that the amount of people that usually die um, through through the, because of the pollution have now it's decreased by twenty percent in some in some countries. So it just shows. Over a short period of time, if we um, if we actually, you know, lock the, the world down, which it is pretty much at the moment, how quickly it will repair itself? Definitely. If you look at the the, uh, the sediment settlement, you know, they have all the canals in Paris and whatnot in Venice. How how, um, how clear all they were? Um, that in itself, everyone was going, oh, the pollution. Well, actually, the boats have stopped moving. They've allowed the water to settle. That's why. Yeah, but that alarm you know I mean? was set on set, uh, sediment, um, wasn't it? That's but, kicked uh -huh. up. But it, but even so, you know what I mean. It's like we've now realised that there is a lot of fish in there, and there's a lot of stuff, you know, about you know ducks and swans have really gone to the area. There's certain parts of Wales where the deer are now walking through the, the villages, and you know, it's all it's all very nice, isn't it? And it's the it shows the impact that us as humans have on nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But but anyways, enough doom and gloom. I've got one doom and gloom thing to add to this uh for all the people that have been asking about my paint it still hasn't arrived oh what about Man. your glass my glass fuck off i'm gonna really upset <laughs> oh, pound oh, for, oh two pound 
I'm going to really upset you now, mate. Go on. Ordered pond liner two days ago. It's coming tomorrow. Is, is that class as essential, though? It is absolutely... Well, it doesn't matter. I'm having it delivered. <laughs> and it, I and paid next day delivery. Yeah. Home base. Sort it out. <laughs> have you have you not tried going to like B and M or something? No, no, it's click and collect, and it's not essential, so it's done. It'd be yeah, mm. I'm I'm angry. Anyways, anyways, <laughs> Warren Booth. No, he's had yeah. enough. He's gone, mate. No part of this show. This is ridiculous. Oh, he's gone. He's, 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 <laughs> these pums. You know how many times I've been called a pum this week? No, I know. No, it's just not, what's what the, Austra- well, throughout the Australians. Yeah, so we've got a couple of Australian guests lined up um, for over the next like, well, eternity, and they keep referring to us as poms, and it's just like I'm gonna pum and pummel the hell into you, nasty people. <laughs> right, okay. so aggressive. So my feature this week, um, we're gonna try a new book. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, our, our fantastic guest has a, a, a really good book, and uh, as if by magic, he just seemed to have a page number off the top of his head. <laughs> so, so what, Warren, would you like to tell everyone what the book is? Because I don't think yes. Danny and Mike have got it. Absolutely, the book is the uh, Pythons of the World, Volume Three: The Pythons of Asia and the Malaya Archipelago. Excellent book by Dave and Tracy Barker. Oh, the Barkers, yeah, fantastic. Lovely and what's yes. the page, my lovely friend? The page would be 269. <sighs> okay, so I've read this book, all right, mm. and majority of it I can pronounce. Hoss has right. flicked through the book and look at the pictures. <clears throat> now, the first one, the first part of it, I've nailed this. I've got it, all right? <laughs> the second yeah. bit, I think the person who named this species can't even pronounce that. <laughs> okay, so this is the Mon, the Mon short-tailed python. Um, the species was described in 2011 based on a single specimen collected in 2002. This lone specimen is only recorded, uh, it's the only known recording of this python from the country of Myanmar. Um, attempts to collect more specimens have been unsuccessful. Um, so the holotype grav- is a gravid female at one point five eight meters in total length oh for fuck's sake throwing himself again oh. Oh, I swear i'll just make a note of that oh, yeah, it's three quid <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm aware this is python kai atio kai atio well, so you've missed out a kai you've i put an i in there where there's a t <laughs> <laughs> Warren planned this. This is brilliant. Go on. Go, I didn't I'm sitting in my office in my lab, and I've got a lot of books on the shelves. And, and I was actually looking at this book because we're doing some work at the moment. So, so how would you, a bit of a, um, how would you pronounce that? Hi, I would I would pronounce it Kaikatayo. Yeah. That's exactly what I'd say. Yeah, Kaikatayo. What did no, you I call it? Us? Wrong. Kai, and I'm willing to accept that. Kai, yeah, I'd say I'd say the wire. Tire, You know what? I don't care. There's only one one of them ever found. What do you uh-huh. what do you call it? A python. I would call it uh, <laughs> python on its own ear. On on. It's nice. It's got the head of a blood. But like literally, out of everything, like every single other species in this book, you have to pick the one that I wouldn't be able to do. 
Because I'm really mm-hmm. good with pythons normally. Yeah. Yeah, I did see that one. I just thought that one could be the. Um, that's the one that could that could stump you a little bit. Okay, well, th- thank you for that. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, also to our listeners as well, if you do have a book that you think will be useful for this feature, then let us know. Well, let Danny and Mike know. Don't, don't let me know because I'll just cry. <laughs> no, it's good. It's educational, mate. We get to find out how not to pronounce things and we find out a little bit about the, the snake. Uh, Definitely. Well. Right, okay. And whilst we've just done that feature, we have had a complaint. Oh, you're joking. Yes, we have. Um, um, and I'm going to see if you can guess which Australian lovely person has put that complaint in. I don't know. No? Scott? Oh, uh, okay. Right, so <laughs> he says that he feels really sorry for me and that you two have bullied me beyond the line. Uh-huh. And he thinks that we should stop the feature for my own mental health. And be basically because you, 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 yeah, you're not very nice people. That's that's fine. <laughs> we we can stop. We can stop the feature. I can think of worse. Yeah, <laughs> Hass, I would. I would spare the devil, you know, mate, because uh, it could go horribly wrong for you, pal. Oh, mate, that's fine. We stop this feature. I'm coming up with the next one. <laughs> right, I'm just glad it's an we... audio feed, not a video feed. <laughs> I think we've talked enough rubbish. We've got a super intelligent uh, guest on who does loads of work with animals. I can't wait to hear all about it. Oh, okay. We do we do that a lot, though, don't we? Turn it to rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, Warren. That's all right. Okay, so um, oh, I don't even know where to get started with this. Um, oh, God. How, long, us- how you lived out in the States for Warren? So I think this is um, this is my fifteenth year, fourteenth or fifteenth year. I see. So, that. Good, yeah. good while then, pal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, we should be um, probably applying for our citizenship probably later on this year. Okay. Cool. Okay. So, do you want to take us back into what you kept when you were over on the uh, on the the bright side? Of life, yeah, man, definitely. And talk about the the hobby as it was over here, because I'd like to hear the differences between like the UK side of the hobby and the American side as well. Yeah, sure. Like I, you know, I I, I don't really know how the UK hobby is now, but uh, whenever I started, there was a single shop in Belfast called City Reptiles, and I think a couple of other people have talked about it or mentioned it before. It was owned yeah. originally by a guy called Victor Carruthers. And um, it was the first dedicated reptile shop in Belfast. And, uh, and he got some cool stuff in. Um, I actually got interested in, in reptiles prior to, to being introduced to that shop, just simply by working with my dad and seeing a, a reptile in a customer's house. And, and that kind of got me fascinated. And, and from there, I got leopard geckos. And then I got, um, I got snakes after that. I got hognose snakes and king snakes. But very rapidly... Um, I got interested in boas and pythons and I primarily kept, which is kind of weird. My, I think my third snake was a, an Amazon tree boa. Wow. And, um, and within a very short period of time, I had about, I think I got up to about 45 Amazon tree boas. Um, and I bred those extensively. Um, in fact, you know, I know Peter Niche because I sold Peter Amazon tree boas maybe 20 something years ago, 22 years ago, maybe whenever he was, and was, smaller than he is now. was he a um, 
Was he a twit back then as well? He, well, you know, he was a nice kid and he had a lot more hair. I will point that out. <laughs> I can't um, imagine him with hair. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I got um, I got into Amazons and Emeralds and I got into um, Sonoran Desert Boas uh, through a friend in England who was a, a guy called Clive Osborne. He was a really dedicated locality boa guy. You know, he had like clouded boas and St. Lucia boas and all these kind of r- really rare animals, especially nowadays. Uh, yeah. But he also imported from Europe and, and he brought in some Sonoran boas for me and a friend. And, um, and just by chance, you know, through my sheer ignorance and neglect, I, I bred them and the female produced an anarthristic. Oh my that word. turned out to be the founder of the anarthristic line of Sonorans that you'll see advertised and kept around the US or around the UK and Europe. There's only a couple in the US right now. Yeah. Um, and from that, you know, I traded for, for other boas, for other, you know, albinos and hypos that at the time were really expensive. So I kind of started building up a collection then um, of boas and pythons. And I, I had some royal pythons. Um, back then, you know, whenever we talk about royal pythons, the albinos were really just coming out bob clark was just producing those and mm-hmm. there were none in, none really in the uk um so you know you had basically black striped ball python or royal pythons and you had gold royal pythons and stuff like that you know just little variants but they were fun because i kept those and i bred them and i think royal pythons are still a cool snake you know i think they're their interest i think they're they've been overshadowed by all of the color morphs and pattern morphs, which has in some way ruined them. In other ways, it's benefited the community. Um, but I kept those. And then in, 2000 and, in 2005, whenever I finished my PhD, I, I, I accepted a position in North Carolina at NC State University. And, and I then sold off all of my tree boas. And I sold off all of the royal pythons. And I kept, I got it down to about 28 boas that I exported. Over okay, yeah. And, and and how how did that work? How you know do you, do you have to apply for a for a license yeah. to export them or? No, then it was very straightforward. It's kind of funny because they had two rights that I could take. One was go with um, go through the UK, and I applied. I got all the permits, the paperwork from the UK, and it was turning out to be time consuming and more problematic than I wanted it to be. So I then applied for the permits via uh, through Dublin. And within a week, I had my export permits and I um, exported them from Dublin. I drove down from Belfast to Dublin, which then took about an hour and a, hour and 45 minutes, two hours. And, uh, and I shipped them via Delta to Philadelphia to a friend, picked them up and kept them for a few months until I got established. It was very, very straightforward. It was just stressful at the time. You know, it, there were issues with them going missing in Philadelphia and, you know, stuff like that in the middle of December, which is not great. But but they arrived and they arrived safely. Um, and from then I just, you know, at that point earning more money and being in a, in a, in a country where there was a, a wider choice of, of BOA localities and morphs and stuff like that, I, I very rapidly started building up again. And whenever I would breed, I would trade. And, and pretty quickly it got up to, you know, I think right now I've got about 140 snakes between my lab and my, um, and my home. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So, age was you when you started breeding some of these really rare, um, rare morphs? So I, uh, I'm 42 now. So I was uh, like 17 or 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was funny because then I, you know, I, one of the, 
one of the first, well, the first snake I bred were Western hognose and then uh, Royal pythons and then, and then Amazon tree boas. And, um, and at that point, you know, we were producing, you know, red babies, solid red and solid orange. And I, I couldn't give them away. Um, nowadays are worth a lot you know I, I could sell a red solid red amazon here for maybe a thousand dollars or twelve hundred bucks but then i couldn't give them away which is one of the reasons why i kept amassing such you know i just kept back what i produced and, yeah absolutely uh, and yeah so it's, it's very different so to, to talk about how it's different between the uk and the us at least then um i don't know what it's like now in terms of shows but um then you had one i think it was one ihs show a year and I would go over to that if I could. Um, and it was kind of nice. It was very diverse. You know, at that point, the, the Royal Python kind of craze hadn't hit. So you got a, a very wide diversity of animals that were at these shows. So I remember like Dave Feldmar there with the original, um, the original Cal albinos that he brought over and the first pied Royal Pythons, you know, things that were kind of cool to look at. Um, you know, there was a lot of different blood pythons, a lot of different, like Dunn's pythons then. I, you know, Liz Phillips brought over a, a bunch of Dunn's pythons that in the end she really could hardly even give away. Yeah, and, and now you can't get your hands on them at all. Right, you know, my I buddy mean, Ryan Young produced them last year and uh, and after a, quite a lot of work trying, and they're, they're pretty remarkable, they're really cool, but they're cool as babies, but as adults, they're you know, kind of dull, you know, but it's like salvia pythons, really cool as babies. As adults, I still like them, but they're not that flashy animal that yeah. I think people will be looking for. I think I think it's uh, it's a beauty mm -hmm. in the eye of the beholder. Um, I think I they're, they're absolutely stunning. Um, Bismarck ring pythons. I'm absolutely fanatic about them. Um, I regret yeah. selling mine. Um, yeah. big 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 time, and I will be yeah. purchasing babies this year, hopefully. Yeah, that's like, like I remember like... the pythons. I think were 125 pounds each. Uh, wild caught. Um, ring pythons were not much different. Yeah, sabus were like you know seventy five. Yeah, and, and with, with, with the, yeah, with, with the ring pythons, everyone goes, oh, the greatest babies, but they're horrible, horrible as adults. They're just muddy, and yeah, I, 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 I think it's the other way around. You've got that goldy, yeah. browny, orangey color, right? Near the from black, from yeah, near, near, yeah. Absolutely but you know stunning. the same thing happened with hog island boas, and the same thing happened with Brazilian rainbow boas. They got really popular. People could hardly give them away, and then people stopped breeding them, so they completely crashed. And they, yeah. they they're they're kind of species that go on these cycles. And if you look so, at um, the MBKs, Mexican blacks, um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> when I first started this, you know, this this hobby, they were they were cheap. They were everyone had mm -hmm. them. Yet now mm -hmm. they they're like they're like three four hundred pound each. I blame kind of podcasts and. Whoa! Are you blaming NPR? People name it. Yeah, right. I think people name. Say, you know, this is rare or this is cool, and all of a sudden, people that might actually not be interested in them at all suddenly think they're cool because somebody spoke about them, and they yeah, buy social, them. For that. Social media in general, yeah, can, yeah, can it, it can be know, the rise and the fall. Yeah, of, it's of it's um absolutely. You saw Lorenzo yeah. Deru. He had those Sibon. Uh, the mm -hmm. the snail eaters and be, to be honest, <clears throat> I probably wouldn't keep them. However, I did see some at oh. Doncaster. Did, at Doncaster, then I kept going to you. They're, mm, they're yeah. like they're like seventy five pound each. There's three. Like, I know, obviously, I'm, and, and yeah. honestly, it took so much so much energy to walk away from the table. I've got yeah. no interest in these, but I've seen the videos of them eating and how cool that is. 
but I'm not I'm not buying them just on the basis oh, that. Oh, I think they that. look amazing. Um, no, you know mate, what? If you ever see them in the wild, they're really cool because I I teach a course in uh, in Costa Rica every year, and I go down to the rainforest for about nine or ten days, and we. Two of the most common thing species that we catch would be Cybon nebulatus and yeah, um, can, can I find can I find a guest for pissing me off because I'm jealous? <laughs> Does that work? Yeah, they're really cool. They're, they're a really neat snake. But the Cybon logophrenus, they they're almost a mimic for the um, eyelash viper. So you've got to be careful which one if you're picking them up. You know, make sure you identify them. Okay. Well. Okay. Yeah. And I'll yeah. send you pictures later on of two side by side, and they're kind of cool. You know, they're they're really good mimics. And and is that for is that for a reason? Uh, is it mimicking that so to keep predators away from it? Would you say? I would say so. Yeah. You, yeah, it, yeah. you know, whenever you're there, you find mimics for a lot of different venomous snakes. So you'll find mimics for fertilants in the false fertilants. You'll find the mimics for the eyelash vipers in the cybon logophrenus and uh, angulatus. And then there's there's another couple that that are essentially mimics. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But then again, you know, like I wouldn't I wouldn't own them because they're snail eaters, and it's a pain in the ass to get the food for them. It's it's like Corallus trebos that I keep a lot of here. You know, I can I can I've got access to getting ones that are basically not kept in captivity, which is Corallus grenadensis and Corallus cookai, but they're lizard feeders as babies. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, yeah. do I want to be sitting force feeding mouse tails, or do I mm-hmm. want to you know spend an exorbitant amount of money on baby lizards each month? You know, and yeah. it's, I just don't see the point. You know, it's I don't I, I don't see the pleasure in that kind of aspect. You know. I'm quite, it's quite it's quite refreshing to see the it's, there's quite an attitude shift towards lizard feeders and stuff because I think people are now mm. starting to realise that actually they're not they're not as cool as people think because it's almost like there was a fad wasn't there a few years back everyone was buying lizard feeders <clears> and thinking oh yeah I can get lizards no you can't you can't it's hard yeah, it's hard going. it's also, also realising that if you're buying wild caught anolis lizards. You've got the issue potentially with parasites if they're feeding live. It's the legal side of it as well. So the pet right, shop right. you're buying the them from can't, yeah. The, the yeah. pet shop you're buying them from can't legally sell it to you if they know it's going right. to be food. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that's, uh, that's, that's dodgy in itself. So, mm, yeah. so do you want to run us through um, what you're currently keeping? Just a quick breakdown. And any breeding attempts that you've got for this year or what you think you might be happening? Yeah, so um, we can go with probably boas are the ones that make up probably about 100, 120 animals that I've got. So they're split between uh, boa imperator, which are the, uh, they used to be boa constrictor imperator, then I boa imperator. And it's all Central American that I keep. So the Nicaraguan morphs, the Costa Rican T-positives and black boas, the Honduran onyx super onyx, stuff like that. And then I've got these pretty rare ones, which are um, West Snake Key, Lagoon Key, and Crawl Key, which are direct descendants from those collected from the islands, because my friend collected them. Um, and they're tiny. They're really cool. And then I keep a lot of Sonoran boas still, so the, which are now Boa Sigma. Um, so they're elevated to their own species. And for those, I got the leopards, the anarthristics, the hypos, you know, combinations of all of those. And they're kind of fun, you know, they make up stuff that I really enjoy keeping, but you know, I sell a decent amount of them. So financially, they're quite beneficial. Yeah. The thing that I'm really into are the, are the Corallus tree boas. So I, I keep a bunch of Amazon tree boas. Um, I've got Northern Emeralds, both 
the anaconda phase and the pattern phase. And then I've got a probably the, it's possibly the, the most genetically diverse, locality diverse group of Corrales Ruschenbergeri in the world, because I've got the Costa Ricans, the Venezuelans, and then we recently collected um, 10 animals from Trinidad for under scientific license, which are the first ones to come off Trinidad in maybe 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've got green Tanzania, um, Brazilian rainbow boas, and then with pythons, um, Tracy Barker at the last Arlington show gave me a pair of the caramel Sumatran bloods, so the uh, caramel oh, albino, they're kind of yeah. cool. Nice. And then uh, Nick Martin and, and Ryan Young gave me a pair of um, wild-type Darwin carpets, which are really nice. Non-albino? I've got a, another friend gave me a pair of albinos, the pure see, albinos. See, no, I've, well. I've never seen in the flesh a non but just a normal wall top Darwin. Yeah, um, yeah. Funny, you know, I, 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 I never had a real desire to keep carpets. I like them, but and the reason I got Darwin's is that well, Nick Mutton and Ryan Young and I are, are involved in a pretty significant Python project in terms of genetics. But I'd mentioned to them before that um, a story of Darwin's pythons, uh, Darwin pythons coming into the UK twenty something years ago, and a friend of mine spending vast amount of money for them. Yeah, and. Uh, and now they're, you know, I can pick them up at shows for, you know, 300 bucks, you know, but the albinos, I remember whenever they were first coming in and the, the money that was spent on those, you know, between, I think it was 35 and $60,000. And, and I got a pair given to me by a friend, you know, so they're, they're kind of, kind of, they're cool little snakes. I like them. I also keep some Aria Island green tree pythons. Mm -hmm. um, We've got an amazing, absolutely amazing collection, Warren. Did you say that the, the, your collection is split between home and um, is it a university? Yeah, I, yeah. So I, I keep the majority of it at home, but in, in my office, I like to have kind of something to keep me occupied whenever I'm kind of stressed. So I've got just behind me, I've got some emerald tree boas. I've got some Costa Rican Corrales Ruschenbergeri. In fact, I've got a gravid female right now basking and then i've got um, some venezuelan because uh, venezuelan corrales ruschenberger i so i i keep some here i also quarantine everything at my lab so and everything will be at my lab for at least a year before it gets brought home okay yeah okay so, good. So, so, do you do you want to talk about what this lab is and what you actually do because i think this is where we're going to completely fry well i'm going to fry my own brain with some of the questions that i want to ask you mm -hmm. Um, but do you want to start with the basis of what the lab is all about? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a professor of um, evolutionary genetics. And um, the lab is, uh, it's, I've been running my lab at the University of Tulsa for the last eight years. And it's primarily focused on understanding how organisms evolve in urban settings. So, you know, what genes are upregulated and downregulated to allow organisms to survive in kind of the environments that we create, which are highly stressful, how some become these super adapters and some don't. So we, we actually work primarily with insects, um, but um, we have also worked extensively, and I still do work extensively with, um, with reptiles. And it's more, the reptile work is much more of a hobby research. Um, so we... We do a lot of work on parthenogenesis and snakes. We probably we probably contributed the largest body of, of research regarding parthenogenesis and snakes. Um, and that started totally fortuitously um, maybe 11 years ago. I, I, I got a phone call from a friend of mine, Jeff Ronnie, 
to um, breed foals here in the US and and he's, he said that he had a, um, a friend that had a litter of boas that uh, he that she needed to know which male sired the offspring and could I do the testing and I did and it turned out there was no male it was partly genetic wow that went, have, nobody would have known that had you have not done that testing Right, you know, at that point there was some work on parthenogenesis and a couple of snake species, but that was primarily in the mid mid nineties by a friend of mine, Gordon Shewitt, and then one paper on parthenogenesis in Burmese pythons a little bit later on. But um, I think with the boa work, we were much more comprehensive about it, and and it also went worldwide in terms of how it was publicized. So the media just ran wild with it, and as a result, I continually get emails and phone calls from people asking if I can test, you know, litters or clutches for parthenogenesis. And, and since then, we've, we've, we've published work on reticulated pythons, royal pythons, rainbow boas of multiple species, various rattlesnakes, copperheads, cottonmouths. We're about to do some work on cobras. Um, you know, I've got a boxes full of shed skins for sample of samples that, that we can screen. So, you know, at, at this point, it's funny. I, I, um, I was speaking at a, at a conference last year, biology of pit vipers conference. And, and, uh, maybe two years ago, maybe three years ago, Mark Ushay was at it. Okay. And, uh, and I described it and Mark and I, we know each other pretty well. And I, I described not being interested in describing parthenogenesis and snake species anymore because I, I looked at it as kind of snake, uh, as, as kind of stamp collecting. You know, here's another one, and here's another one, and here's another one. It doesn't tell us anything. I didn't know at that point that Mark is an avid stamp collector. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> probably back to that later on, but, uh, you know, we're much more interested now in kind of understanding the mechanisms that drive it. So what causes a snake to produce parking genetically? And whenever it does, what happens to things like venom? What happens to its ability to reproduce? What happens? Is it a heritable trait? Things like that. And that's what we're we're really much more interested so, in now. So here's, here's a question for you. Obviously, there are thousands upon thousands of breeding successes throughout the year. Do you yeah. think a... I'm guessing it would be a small proportion. Um, but do you reckon there are cases where people think they have bred something and they really haven't? Absolutely. And I don't think it's that uncommon. Uh, I, I believe that parthenogenesis in boas and in pythons is actually quite common. Um, it's definitely right. not in my Darwins, mate. I can tell you that now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, well, Darwins are a little bit more tricky to, to breed. You know, they're you, you don't breed them like regular carpets. Yeah. But um, it's certainly much more common than people think. Uh, we've shown that it happens in the wild. Um, okay, so is there, you know, some, I, is there certain? Um, I don't know. Oh God, this is this is a question I don't even want people to know the answer to. But say, for instance, I had a female green anaconda. Is there a certain condition or parameter we can put this animal in to make her breed internally? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, we. Um, I'm doing some work with Tracy Barker and Dave Barker. We have a manuscript kind of in the works where we we think we can we can identify it a year previous to it occurring. Um, Tracy is Tracy is meticulous in the data that she collects, and because uh, Tracy does all the breeding, right? It's not Dave; it's Tracy yeah. does all the work. Yeah. 
um, and she ultrasounds and she weighs and so she's currently housing I think maybe 30 or 40 possum genetic blood pythons for me and um, we're doing so these are, these have all proved out to be parthenogenic yeah, yeah. and yeah. then you're now seeing if there's certain traits yeah and, you know various conditions are they so I've, I've got about 40 parthen genetic boas and pythons here in my freezer they don't do very well so they get to points and they just they just seem to just go downhill um, oh, it's because you're putting them in a freezer warren you mentioned i realized that very quickly you know whenever you run out of space the freezer is not the best place for them but um, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, they, what um, what else is in this freezer you know, what was I mean, that? If, if that is your answer to I've run out of space to put it in the freezer. What else is in that freezer? Uh, there's a cat. There's a cat. In it. Uh, there are thousands of mice and rats. Uh, and there's half of a Gila monster. Uh, don't ask me where the other half is. Um, he got hungry. There's quite a few They just don't do well because they're highly inbred, right? They're, it's they're not heterozygous across their genome they're they're homozygous across their genome largely and as a result just imagine anything being highly inbred and the effects that come along with that so yeah you might have some genes that are detrimental or they're not good and they get selected out but you get other ones that get fixed and and um, parthenogens just don't do well but we have we have produced uh, royal pythons and um boa constrictors from parthenogens so we've produced mm -hmm. And, and we've shown that the parthenogens can produce parthenogenetically themselves. Um, and uh, we show that they can produce sexually as well. So, um, you know, if, if people get the opportunity to get them, I wouldn't recommend it. You know, I get, I, that's one of my common messenger kind of requests. You know, they've been offered this snake for X amount of money. Do I think it's a good idea? And the answer is no every single time. Yeah, and, and I can totally not, understand that. They're not, they're just, they're not, you know, you're not going to buy a highly inbred anything. And that's exactly what they are, you know. So, um, but, you know, we show that it happens in the wild and we, we're now showing things, mechanisms. That they're, they're, we're using it to understand kind of cool things. So we used it to be able to show that up until a couple of years ago, we thought that all snakes had Z, uh, ZW sex chromosomes. Yeah, and um, you know, whereas mammals are, are XY. XY. Well, we showed that we yeah. showed that boas and pythons are XY, mm -hmm. and and that and with the exception of the Dumerils boas, so we're going to show that there there's that W, um, and um, whereas the advanced snakes, the you know the cobras and the rattlesnakes and the garter snakes and so on, they're all that W. So we showed we showed that, which kind of rewrites the textbooks in many ways. Um, we're we're using it to kind of revise our understanding of the mechanisms that really drive parthenogenesis so but it's all it's all hobby research this is not stuff that i applied for research funding for mm -hmm. it's just stuff that's kind of fun you and just I, happen to be in the right place to be able to do it as a hobby yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely you know? and, well, and we do this we do this um, it's entirely genetically right so we um we sequence genomes we don't you know we, we've gone away from sequencing just a handful of genes we now sequence entire genomes and with that, we know a lot more about really what's going on within the genome of the organism. So it's, yeah. it's really it's, it's really interesting. But, you know, I'm kind of winding that whole aspect down. And, um, you know, because my lab, the stuff that we do with urban evolution takes up the majority of my time. Well, it doesn't right now because my lab is now closed until the foreseeable future because of coronavirus. But yeah. um, the other stuff that we do, um, 
we're working on Indo-Australian Python phylogenetics. So we're we're looking to to understand how species are related to each other. Yes, yeah, so this um, is this is what Ming you were talking about. So right, I have an right. undescribed cool. carpet python, and right, we need to find so, out what the hell it is. Yeah, so what we're doing, I'm doing some work with Nick Mutton for his new book. So his, um, you know, his he's got the complete carpet python. He's yeah, currently nearly finished well. the more complete carpet python, which is kind of remarkable because it's over 500 pages long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm contributing a chapter um, which will be about um, carpet python phylogenetics. And with that, you know, if we look at what's known, right, you see like uh, the uh, Papuan carpets are or Harrison I, you know, you see the yeah. very cat, all these different things. We're, we're about to revise that completely. So um, there's not as many species as they currently list, and Harrison I is not a species. Um, Honestly. Not, so you're, uh, our Australian friend that shall not be named is not going to be happy. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you say his name, that, that is that, that's a hundred pound fine just to let you right. know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're doing that. So, so to get back to your your question of could we uh, determine what your species is, the answer is yes to an extent. Right. The problem with carpets is that because they haven't been exported, with the exception of a handful of of Darwin carpets that were exported mm-hmm. legally, and those that come in through Papua, um, there's been a, a massive amount of crossbreeding that has occurred. Even 24, 25 years ago, um, there was a big, the, the, one of the big um, must-have snakes at the time were jungle carpets. Yeah. And people were having difficulty breeding diamond pythons, but they could breed a diamond to a carpet very easily. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a lot of crossbreeding went on there, a lot of crossbreeding between coastals and, and jungles and so on. So it kind of muddies the water quite significantly and, and therefore... Uh, yeah. What you hope will be a um, what you what you might think is a is a coastal carpet, for example, might actually just be an integrate between a variety of different species. Yeah. So species. when so when you've done all your very clever exam uh, examinations in your lab, and you got this muddied water, could you literally turn around and say, right, okay, well, two generations ago, that that was a carpet python in a jungle carpet python or, or whatever could you physically tell me i don't know it's 60 percent coastal 40 percent whatever or is it just a case I, of... I, I think i think there's i think we're getting to the point where we possibly could get close to that right we, we should definitely be able to say you know we it's got parts of its genome that match to coastals it's got part of its genome that matches to darwin whatever um and there are ways that we might be able to show proportions of the genome across its, across its entire DNA, what parts belong to which. Um, that's going to be much more expensive to test, um, but um, it's something that's coming to, you know, to, to a point where we should be able to do it. The, the big issue is that unlike, unlike snakes where I can go out and collect a lot of them, so like unlike rattlesnakes where I could go out and collect a ton of rattlesnakes across the different species mm-hmm. um, and therefore have a have a representative across of what a species is genetically so this is, this yeah. is the, we can help you we out here now. <laughs> we, we can we send now i've sorted it for you right i don't know how we're paying for it but that, that, that that's you know that's that's not the problem we'll sort that out somehow we'll send danny myself and mike to australia to find as many carpet pythons 
and we'll follow them until they shed, and then we'll we'll collect the sheds for you, write it down, and then we'll bring them back to you. It's fine, but we'll do it. Just just somehow find the money, and we'll we'll do it. It's fine. The problem with that is getting the shed skins out of Australia. It, look, look, yeah. look! If we if we can get if we can get Danny Wells out of Norfolk, <laughs> we're working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it for another major Python kind of complex kind of group that we're trying to get some some samples out of out of Australia, and it's it's taken a lot more time. You know, myself and Nick okay. Madden have been traveling to various museums in Hawaii and California, doing measurements and stuff like that, and getting tissues for analysis here. And it's not easy. It takes time, you know. And, I can uh, I, you know, I, the amount of students that contact me every year about wanting to work on snakes and getting this idea that they're going to be able to go to Indonesia and collect scrub pythons and carpet pythons and and green trees, and it's just not the case. You know, you talk yeah. to anybody that's actually there. Like even even in in Costa Rica, where in the rainforest that I'll go to, you know, over the space of on my last trip last uh, Thanksgiving last November, I was there for eight or nine days and just due to the weather i think in the end we only ended up with maybe 10 snakes of yeah multiple different species you know and, and primarily they were they were fertilized but um you definitely don't see you know they're not while they're tree snakes they're not hanging from the trees you know they're they're not as easy to find as people think and um, and, and warren are you trying to get sort of like uh you know in an ideal world if this was you to utopia you could get a hundred you know, I don't know, pure jungles from a certain location and then test them genetically and get an average? Is that what you... you yeah, I think that, that would be the you've got a baseline? Uh, yeah, that would be the ideal. I don't think it's, it's, it'll never happen. Um, so the only way around think, that, if you used to have a lab in Australia, um, that right. could do that and then send the data over, but obviously... The, that's, could exactly we could also right. run that for that's, you. That's what we're working on towards <laughs> now. You know, that's what we're working towards. The other thing is the cost. You know, this is... To, to develop this, we're not talking a couple hundred bucks. You know, we're talking forty or fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. So, so this is why, you know, whenever people turn around and ask me, you know, can you tell me what my boa is or what my python is or whatever, um, a big one is people thinking that they're going to be able to get a test done that tells them that their the royal python is het pied or het sunset or het whatever. That's not going to happen anytime soon because we don't have the genome of the of the royal python where all of these genes are mapped out. Yeah, and therefore we can't develop a test to do that. Well, we we could do it, but it's going to cost about twenty five or thirty thousand to do it, and nobody's going to do that because it's not worth it. Where we are developing tests is to be able to sex green tree pythons, uh, blue tongue skinks, Gila monsters, and some varanid lizards. Those are all ones where people will be able to send me a shed skin, and I can tell them as a baby it's a male or it's a female, mm-hmm. and we should hopefully have that online. Um, well, as soon as the lab reopens, hopefully within about six months, okay. we should have. And the, what would the pipeline. what would the cost be of that approximately? For that kind of sexing, probably about twenty five bucks a sample. Twenty bucks a sample. Okay, that's, that's not. Yes, that's, okay. that's, that's, that's that's you have a collection of green tree pythons, which normally you can't sex until they're a year old or, or older, uh-huh. and you can sex immediately. It means that your market is much more attractive. But, but I also think yeah. Male or, but I also think if you've got your paperwork all there and there's a nice little printout and it says this is the gar- you know, a, a lab- laboratory yeah, yeah. confirmed male, right. mm-hmm. then right. I'd pay extra for that. Yeah, I think so. I yeah. Mean, I think yeah. It's- yeah, you would. You'd pay extra for a guarantee, wouldn't you? And, and also, I think with that peace of mind, I think you're more likely to get the business in the first place because you'd be much yeah. more trusted as a breeder and as a seller. 
Well, definitely. I'm, I'm, there's, there's certain people who were um, arena uh, arena testing their GTPs and whatnot before they sold right. them. Um, when when all that was massive over in you know first light over in here, and yeah. uh, it was um, again it was that peace of mind that you're buying an animal that you know is going to be okay. Knows yeah. clean, yeah. To the extent that, to the extent that they've tested it sufficient numbers of times, like one test is not the answer. Generally, for arena and for nidovirus, they recommend at least three tests. So you know it, it becomes quite expensive. Um, mm. But if you can test the parents, for example, if you're breeding, and you can test the the adults, then then you're fine. It's funny I had somebody talking to me last week who was telling me they're going to get all of their babies tested for nidovirus, and I was like, well, why don't you just test the parents? Yeah, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't have, and your yeah. collection's clear. Then the other ones, the babies aren't going to have it, and they didn't seem to understand that. Yeah, but, um, I think it was an NPR episode that I was listening to, and they were talking about it. So if you've got a pair that are both tested positive for nidovirus and they breed, the eggs test positive, like the outside of the eggs. It may not, yeah, because you're in, picking up cells from the female at yeah, that point. But then so on the, the inside, so if, if you used to clean the eggs, and as soon as they hatch, remove the snake straight away, then the chances yeah. of them ever getting nidovirus is fairly slim. Right, yeah. Um, it's quite it's interesting stuff. Yeah, I think the heritability of all that, so we just don't know it. You know, there's I've talked to people that have wanted to kind of set up tests to be able to do this, and again, it takes a lot of time and people get bored very quickly. You know, they, they think that they can just breed one clutch of carbopythons that are nido positive or boas that are arena positive, and that'll tell them the answer. And it's not that you need you need dozens and dozens of replicates, and nobody really is gonna is gonna do that. Yeah, mm. it's it's like it's like with the only reason I would want to have my carpet python tested is because, say for instance, it's got a high percentage of inland carpet python, then perhaps mm -hmm. how I'm keeping it may be a little bit wrong, um, or you know it seems to be fine, but we're able to care for the animal better if we actually understand what we've got. Well, the problem with that is that you don't know what percentage, which parts of the genome would be would be belonging to which species. That makes sense. So you so so think about carpet pythons, right? They've got a large range where they go from, you know, insanely hot, to to overwintering in a in a in a hibernation phase. Mm -hmm. And um, if you've got two, if you've got a, a hybrid which has part of its genome you know, depending on back crosses, is more associated with the overwintering one mm -hmm. um, than in the hot summer or the hot end, kind of hot winter, then, you know, you could be keeping it very differently. And, and without knowing the genome of the animal and like understanding what genes are doing what, and we're not going to know that. It took 10 years for that for, for humans, for goodness sake, you know, and um, it's, uh, I don't think it's going to tell us anything. I, I'm a firm believer that most snakes will adapt to the conditions in your room pretty readily if they're captive bred. And with carpet pythons, we're that many generations into captive bred that, you know, we could pretty much breed them in, you know, kind of shoe boxes underneath our bed, which is what many people are actually bloody doing, you know? So yeah, yeah. it's, it's I think we think, I think people overthink their animals that they think they need to provide, you know, they think that bioactive is the way forward. They think that they got to emulate the weather conditions in the location where their animal is from. And I disagree with that because the animals are so far removed from it that the environment that they're in has a major interaction with their with their genome and their genes that are being expressed. So therefore, you could actually be doing more harm by trying to emulate this wild condition because it's not natural to what they've been raised in over time. Yeah, I, 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 totally, 
Uh, we've spoke about this before, and I've got a real layman's sort of like term for that. And I was saying, you know, <clears throat> if you went to a uh, a village in the middle of Africa uh, and they're struggling for food and water, and you look at them as, you know, as let's say, you know, you, you're taking them into captivity, um, you know, they would actually benefit from more meals, <laughs> a better diet, uh, mm. and, and and regular water. So yeah. if we're trying to emulate that with our captive bread, just mm. because they uh, originally come from that area, doesn't mm. mean they're going to benefit from that way mm. of life. If no, that I makes think. sense, and that was just putting it in a real yeah, layman's I, I, I terms. Think, no, it's, you know, like here's here's the deal. Like I I breed a lot of I've I've bred a lot of different species of snakes, and I'm very successful at breeding snakes. And, and the secret to my success is very simple. I do nothing. I don't alter my thermostats. I don't alter humidity levels. My snakes are kept, whether it's in my office or, or at home, for my tree boas, they're, they're sitting at, a, at an ambient of about 82 degrees. For my boas, they're sitting at an ambient of 84. And over the year, uh, my room cycles. So I keep them in my basement at home. And the basement might get down to about 65 degrees. So, you know, what's that in centigrade? You know, um, the conversion in my head. But um, but in the summer, it'll increase by uh, about 10 or 15 degrees for the ambient temperature. Yeah. It's the, it's the front of the cage or the rack that will cycle. It will go up and down and the snakes will move between it. The importance is the snakes being able to thermoregulate. So if you keep them at the... You know, in a centrally heated house where you don't control it, it could be a different story. But I do nothing with mine. So, and this year I've got a gravid um, northern emerald tree boa, gravid Costa Rican tree boa, gravid hog island, gravid Brazilian rainbow, several gravid um, boa imperator, and several, uh, and one gravid boa sigma, all from doing nothing. I just introduce them at the right time and I feed them very sparingly. So, my adult boas get. Um, one meal a month for nine months of the year, and then they don't get food for the rest of the year. They don't get food for three months. And you know, I step down where if they're three years old, they get fed every three weeks. If they're two years old, they get fed every two weeks. You know, and if they're neonate up to one years old, they get fed about every 10 days. But I am, you know, people ask me how I can afford to feed my collection. It's because I rarely feed them. Yeah, yeah, we we spoke about that a lot. I know there's people a overfeed them and they think, oh, we have to feed a large rat every single week. Where right. you know, I could go five, six weeks sometimes and not not put anything yeah. in there. And well, and then, yeah. And then... So the funny thing is, my, my dad actually came. So I was chilling out in my bedroom earlier. My my dad walks in and goes, um, "So what I thought about, son? Um, but your snakes, um, are you all right for food? If you got food for them, like with this lockdown, can you get hold?" I said, "Well, firstly, like." Pet shops are classes. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Pet shops are classes essential, so they're all open. But to be honest, six months no food, no problem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for big adults. Like, maybe not. Maybe that, not yeah. the hog knows. Right. The mm -hmm. only things that I right. So boas and pipers are fine, and pit vipers are fine because they actually have a um, their physiology changes. Whenever we feed them, within four hours of feeding a boa or a python or a pit viper. Mm -hmm. Their heart will double in size, their intestines will remodel, their blood becomes really thick with plasma, and that lasts for about two weeks. And after two weeks, it all goes back to normal. It atrophies back to its normal state. So whenever you're feeding it continually, you're actually keeping it in this relatively stressed state. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas uh, colubrids like cognosnakes, king snakes, and so on, they all feed, they don't do that. So you need to feed them um, 
uh, much more uh, frequently. So my hog nose, I'll feed every seven days. But, you know, but even so, I've got a Western hog nose who's nearly two now, and yeah. I don't, I don't think I've given him fifteen meals, fifteen meals, twenty meals maybe in the la- in the last two years, and yeah. he's a big old hog nose for the for for the age. Um, uh-huh. I I I wouldn't recommend anyone to do that. I, I keep him incredibly hot. Um, well, it depends on it depends on the size of the prey as well. If yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I think they do need feeding more frequently. But I think in, again, look in the wild. Do does a Western hognose eat every month, every two weeks? No, well, yeah. you know they they feed they feed relatively frequently because we have them in the wild here. We have them locally. I can find Western hognose, and out of the ones that I've caught, many times I catch them eating. But it's always amphibian, so they're okay. always eating frogs. And and I think. And frogs are very readily available. So uh, in, in the areas where I find Western hognose snakes, just five minutes from my house, they're very, very readily available. So yeah. um, I think, but, but the nutritional value of a frog versus a rodent, I think is very different. I don't think they're eating rodents very much in the wild. And I think the only time they're going to eat rodents is if they stumble upon a nest of babies mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, it's I don't also, think or, it's it's also worth remembering that snakes are quite opportunistic, aren't they? And and oh, they'll take yeah. a they'll take a meal when they can, but it doesn't necessarily mean they need it. Do you know, I mean? have pictures of, of rattlesnakes eating uh, carrion from the side of the road that mm-hmm. has that has got maggots on it that's decomposing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm eating it because I have no idea when my next meal is going to come along. Right, that's exactly it. You know, every snake that I've caught in the wild. I've never turned around and said, wow, look at this healthy specimen. It's incredible compared to what we have in captivity. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times they're bags of bones, which is why they only breed in the wild maybe every two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, colubrids are much more active because they're actually hunting for food. They're always on the move. Mm-hmm. But boas and pythons and pit vipers, I, I will guarantee that in assuming we're allowed to travel again in the fall, I'll be going to Costa Rica and I can guarantee that I'll find a eyelash viper on the first day and if it hasn't fed i'm pretty much guaranteed to find that again 10 days later before i leave in the exact same spot they yeah, rarely they're, they're waiting yeah. waiting for that meal to come by and yeah you know me and nick mutton and, and vin russo every time we speak we always complain about people feeding their snakes you know and yeah. it's the cycling is all it's all my cycling for breeding is all about food you know so what I'll step things up a little bit close to breeding, yeah. but generally it's it's about a meal a month, you know. And I'm, 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 I'm the same with most of mine. To be, I mean, I've got colubrids, pythons, and boas, and the colubrids yeah. all, always eat more frequently than than the than the larger bodied snakes. Yeah, 100%. like I've got I've got a Brooks king snake, and I will tell you that I feed the Brooks king snake. I've just got it as a vacuum, basically, because every year. There's always going to be that one little baby boa that doesn't do well or, or yeah. slug or whatever. And I mm-hmm. give that to the king snake instead yeah. of throwing it out. So it'll gorge for maybe, you know, a six-week period during which all the boa litters are born. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, that's pretty much it. It's funny, uh, Warren, because listening to you talk, you're obviously really successful on the breeding side of things. We had David Howard on quite recently, um, Uh who is also over in the UK. Everything he touches just seems to breed. And he Mm -hmm. said exactly the same. You know, I don't really 
think about it too much. Um, yeah. It just happens. The one thing that he said was it was all about getting the male and female in sync with each other. Mm-hmm. And then, so he uses food. When they shed together, he then puts them in. This is just certain species. Um, yeah. but it, and he finds that really, really successful. Yeah, like I, you know, thinking about it, you know, I, I had a, a northern emerald tree boa ovulate maybe 10 days ago. Um, I haven't fed her since January. I've had the pair together since January and they've no since December. And they've been they've been breeding on and off. So I just haven't separated them. Female ovulated, I separated them uh, a couple of days ago. I fed the male, female refused as expected. But yeah. you know, I, I think people overthink it. You know, I think one of the major things is that people buy them and instantly think they're gonna buy adults and breed them. And it doesn't yeah. necessarily work that way. It might work with royal pythons. Um, but for other boas and pythons, it's not that easy. And I think you need to get them into the rhythm that your room is kind of sitting in, the cycles that they go through naturally of day, night, the of temperature fluctuations and so on. I think once you do that, then things prove to be easier to breed than you would think. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know about you guys as well, but there's something about buying a an, an animal from, from a neonate, growing it up yourself, and you, you, you've... you I don't oh, know whether you've got more of a connection. Um, so like... Again, I could have got subadult or adult children's pythons, but I've looked and stumbled across quite quite luckily, to be honest, but babies. Um, Bismarck's again. I know someone at the moment who's got adults who are you know he's considering moving them on, but I'll buy babies because there's just something about growing it up and you've you know you know the history of the animal, you know that it's been fed correctly, that it's been housed correctly, and you know and up until the time where you are going to breed it. Mm-hmm. And what Warren was saying there, I think is absolutely right. By the time that adult has got to, uh, sorry, as uh, that that baby has got to adulthood, it's used of your uh, of of your house, the environment, the the natural cycling that happens in your room, whether that's just the light that comes through the window that changes throughout the seasons. Um, the natural heat in your house where it is cooler, you know, the ambient temperature just drop by a few degrees in the in the winter. Um, what, what I did notice was that whenever I did get um, adult boas years ago, they would breed the first, as soon as I got them, if I got them in the winter and I paired them, you know, this is before I was sensible at quarantine and stuff like that. But if I, if I paired them immediately, they would often breed and produce offspring, but then they wouldn't for three to four years after it. So oh, I yeah. see, well, what's the point? Why not just buy babies if they're available? and therefore raise them up. Now, sometimes you can't, right? Sometimes you just can't find the species that you want as a baby, right? So Duns pythons, you're not going to get babies readily. You know, um, you know, certain tree boas, you're not going to get babies readily. So you take what you can get. Papuan pythons, you know, the Apodora, you take what you can get. Um, but you just have to be prepared that you just got to raise them up and let them get used to the rhythm of the room that you're in and the way you keep and the way you feed. And realistically, just don't give up too quickly. I think people just, if they don't breed it within three years, then they're done because apparently all we do in the hobby is get snakes to breed them. We don't get snakes to keep them as we did whenever we first got snakes, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was was joking, I was on another podcast a couple of weeks ago and and I was kind of joking then that, you know, we don't think about buying a snake anymore. We think about buying a pair or a trio or 2.2 or whatever because we instantly think about breeding them. And even I think that with my mentality, and realistically, it doesn't need to be that. You know, we no. don't need to breed every snake we own. So. Well, yeah, I, I think I, I fell in that trap the other week. I went to obviously sort these children's pythons out, and I asked, you know, if there's two, are they a pair? 
And they were like, uh, no, it's two females. So straight away I went, right, okay, I need to find a male. Um, yeah. I should, really, yeah. really, I should be happy with two female children's pythons. Yeah, they're not that uncommon. Same with spotted pythons and stuff. They're not that uncommon. So it's not as if we need to be producing more, you know, for the market. There's just relatively decent numbers out there. You just have to look for them if you want. But, and again, they're, you, you got to think that they're, they're also not a big seller. Right, it's like Dunn's Python, it's like Sabu's, it's a select group of people that tend to get them, and yeah. therefore, you know, it's not like they're breeding albino, bo albino boas or albino royal pythons or whatever, where there seems to be a bigger market. We have to be selective about we about what we pair, you know, there's some things that are just not going to be easy to sell, and you got to yeah. be willing to look after them for a little bit longer than you might need to, and not get much for them. And you know, like I've got stuff that. That is incredibly rare, but if I sold it, I might get 150 bucks each. Whereas I can put a pair of boas together and get 25. Well, yeah, if you look at, you see the Puerto Rican boas. I think they're ugly as shit, but I know Zach and Luke love them. Uh, two of our friends, and I don't think they're that, they're not that expensive. No, they're not. Yeah. Well, but again, they're a pain in the the pain in the ass because they they can be lizard feeders as babies and stuff, you know. So I've turned down offers of free Jamaican boas and, and Puerto Rican boas just because. You know, when people produce them, they're not, they, they can't sell them in the same way, at least in the US. Mm. But they're, if they're going to be so difficult to get going, I don't, I don't have the time to sit and force feed mouse tails down a snake's throat, you know, for a year and a half before it can switch over to the size of a rodent. You know, it's, that's why I'm not taking Corrales Renadensis from a friend and Corrales Kukai from a friend because that's what it requires. And I just, with, family and snakes and work and i just don't have the time for that you know i also don't see the point in it Warren, i think that's really important you touched on a couple of things there and when people you know they go out and they say right i'm going to breed uh, a pair of whatever it is whether it's boas or or, or, or pythons or what whatever snake it is and they instantly think right as soon as i bred them i'm going to sell them and i'm going to make this money you might sell one or two and you might be left with 15 or 20 that you okay. can't sell uh, mm -hmm. so so that's the one thing that you touched on the other thing as well is you know the time the patience and the dedication it takes to get the majority of the clutch to start feeding mm -hmm. um you know which people just think oh yeah i'll breed them i'll sell them i'll feed them they eat we sell them and and that's it job's done but it's you could not. be feeding those animals or trying to feed them for six eight months before they even take anything right longer yeah a lot of people yeah a lot of people won't sell babies until they're like well eating you know, mm. especially in the UK where you've got where you can't simply just turn around and offer it live mm. you know that's one of the uh, uh, it's only been this year that I've done that just because my with, with my work and my lab you know I, I just got immersed in, 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 in more projects and wrapping things up and I also had seven six or seven boa litters mm. that normally I start everything off on defrost and this year I offered defrost every animal and whatever refused I then just went to live I got a local supplier and I would just buy live and every you know 10 days or two weeks and drop it in and then after like three or four feeds then i'd switch to, to defrost but i just yeah. thought i just don't have the time i've got a two-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter and and i i can't be sitting you know i clean snakes between midnight and three in the morning because i don't have i can't just take the time out from seeing my kids and my wife and stuff like that there and my regular work yeah so if you've got then a hundred and you know something snakes to, to also try and tease feed and sit and wait and it's just not worth it for me you know i I, it's, that's not enjoyable I, I keep snakes because i like keeping them I yeah don't keep it to have to get stressed and and see it as being a real 
chore to actually go down and work with them because at that point it's, you're going to lose your enjoyment of keeping animals and, and that's going to lead to neglect and it's going to lead to not great things mm-hmm. definitely okay so mm. we're at an hour and 13 minutes ish um mm-hmm. I, I feel like i could go on for a lot longer but obviously we need to oh did you know what there's so many questions and stuff that I, I want to find out definitely <laughs> i think i think what we should do is we should obviously everyone who's listening to this if you have any questions for warren booth let us know um there's a lot more that i want to talk about i know i know danny and michael have more questions and we'll live see if stream. we can get uh warren booth on for a live stream maybe uh or for another podcast for round number two um yeah but it's been it's been incredible having you on uh it's nice to, to to talk as well um about some of the things and your mentality on how you keep reptiles and how you go about things is quite refreshing um mm-hmm. so thank you for your time this evening that was great oh. to be on thanks for the invite okay. i'm oh, happy to I come wanna... back and chat whenever you want i'm not oh, exactly right. doing anything else right now you know so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because because you've got loads of things uh, well i know they've been put on hold but i know you're on the berlin uh python symposium that you're, that you're yeah. doing a piece on so there's all of that that we can we can talk about still yeah sure definitely okay i'm over the yard because oh, oh there he is oh, oh look God. somebody's tired and we can't ask all the interesting questions oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay so again thank you for having me on if you want to help support our podcast then please head on over to reptileandchill.com and look at our hoodies and t-shirts for sale our social media is facebook instagram twitter and youtube at the handle of reptile and chill but don't go on the twitter because we don't use it anyway um that is about it for this week um one final final question mm-hmm. out the three of us warren danny myself and mike snog marry or avoid go oh. smoke what snog smoke. marry or snog. avoid. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's going to require a lot more beer and maybe meeting up and meeting you know i need to be able to evaluate you all see the pros and cons it's seeing you through the TV, you know, through the computer. It's just not the same, you know. So. It's a big question, Hoss. <laughs> well, I think it's a big I commitment think, as well. I, I that think, is hard to be marrying you. And it's recorded as well. It's final. Okay, <laughs> so um, you've let me down. You've let yourself down, oh, the podcast down, and oh, everything no, else. Sorry, man. But you know, I Warren, I found I'm it. I'm a lover, not a fighter, so you, you all get it, whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I'd love to talk to you more about about some of the stuff that you do um, and, and and what you're going to be doing during the, you know in the future. So uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely I'll, happy uh, to. Anytime you want, guys, just give me a call. So. Definitely, fantastic. Okay, cool. Well, that is about it for this week. Have you got anything you want to throw in, guys, before we wrap up? Well. No, I'll, I'll, uh, whether Warren, whether the Warren wants to um, promote anything uh, whilst he's on on the podcast, anything at all. Yeah, that live stream. People want me them. I'm pretty easy to find. So, cool. And what is I will that... say is, I will say one thing. Um, I get numerous friend requests on Facebook, um, weekly, daily, and I don't accept them generally because if I don't know you, I'm not going to accept it because you're only going to see stuff generally about my family and the nonsense that goes on there, but. If you do want to see the boa stuff, just look up um, boa booth on uh, Facebook or on Instagram. Very so clever. That you're, Very that's clever. what I try and see. Yeah, right I know. That took a lot of work, right? That was the. I imagine. <laughs> I went on for years. That was the pinnacle. Warren, 
you know? mentioned your family there, um, and there's a picture of you when you're young and your little lad now, and uh, God, you are identical. <laughs> and, you know, here's the deal. As a geneticist, I can test paternity pretty easily. Uh, <laughs> and, and my daughter, I was like, yeah, I don't need to worry about this here. He's got, he's got, a, he's got an, a fantastic, very strong gene in him, and I've got that gene as well. It's the, gin, yeah, it's the ginger gene, mate. It's the uh, yeah, strongest yeah. gene in the body. He's adorable, you know. He's a, uh, you know, especially now with, you know, with working from home. My wife's a, an assistant principal at a school, and uh, we're both working from home and homeschooling the kids. It's a lot of work, you know. I will say that. Once this is all over, if the government and if agencies don't start paying nurses and teachers much more money, yeah, hundred percent, travesty. Because I think we're all realizing what is actually going into that right now. Yeah, well said. Definitely. Hmm. Okay, so on that note, Warren. Yes. I love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. I love you guys. Bye. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good night. Bye.